This was intentional. It was important for me that the film be out this year. There were opportunities for us to make it with more money and with more bells and whistles with studios involvement. Um, but it wouldn't have been out this year. You know, it, it is not a film made to make money for corporations. It's a film made to ignite our imaginations and our curiosity and get us to lean in and figure out what we're going to do next uh, because um, this is an essential time for action. And so that that's our offering and that's our hope. Award-winning filmmaker Ava DuVernay, who explores black history in many of her films from Selma to 13th to the series When They See Us. Her new movie, Origin, is in theaters now as Black History Month begins in the United States. It dramatizes the book Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson. Ava's the winner of the Emmy, BAFTA, and Peabody Awards, and an Academy Award nominee. Democracy Now! has job openings. Go to democracynow.org for more information. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank you so much. You're listening to KBOO Portland. We invite you to participate in our brand-new public affairs program, Once Upon a Time. Share with us your memories and touchstone events of your life, of your journey. Join us first and third Friday of the month from 11 to noon here on Kibu 90.7 FM and available online at kibu.fm. Consuelo is my name and I will be glad to hear from you and reminisce about your journey. Once Upon a Time, live in the air room here at KBU 90.7 FM. Share with us your memories, experience, and journey of your life. First and third Friday of the month, from 11 to noon, here at KBU 90.7 FM. Tune in to Pathways a show featuring conversations with leaders in personal development and cultural evolution. Join me, host Paul O'Brien, or my co-host Donald Altman, every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 a.m. You can find out more about the show or listen to the program archive at kboo.fm slash Pathways. You are listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Althea Billings, one of the co-hosts of the Friday morning talk show, The Gap. Our show is off this morning, but Tammy and I wish you all well and hope to be back on your radio soon. Now, please enjoy this. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm Chris Garaffa. And I'm Rachel Hu. We're very happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin. The decade between 2012 and 2021 saw the killings of 1,733 environmental activists across the globe. Corporate profits rose to record high levels in 2022, while people were still feeling the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Antibiotics fed to cows by beef suppliers for major supermarkets and fast food chains could create a huge public health crisis through the spread of superbugs. Twitter had deep relationships with the federal government when it came to content policy, and many big tech companies hired former CIA and Mossad agents. And all of these should really be considered major stories in and of themselves, but they either barely got any news coverage in the mainstream media 
or they were misrepresented until they were misrepresented until pressure became too big to ignore. So that's why some of these stories, these are just some of the stories on Project Censored's lists of top 25 censored news stories of 2022 and 2023. And there's a massive lack in media literacy in the United States where only four states mandate critical media literacy education in public schools. Project Censored has just published their State of the Free Press 2024, which you can get by clicking the store link at projectcensored.org. So to to talk more about these stories and more about Project Censored, we are joined by their director, Mickey Huff, and associate director, Andy Lee Roth. Welcome to the show, Mickey and Andy. Thanks for having us. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much, Rachel. So happy to have you both. I mean, I'm going to throw this question out to to both of you, but perhaps let's start with Mickey here for some sense of order. I'd love for you to share more with us and our audience about Project Censored's history, your mission, and a little bit more about these reports, because I know Chris and I get getting a chance to comb through them and see some of the stories that are, are really being ignored by the mainstream media. It was really important for us to uplift the project that you're doing. So I'd love to hear more about it and what kind of got you to this point and more of the stories, too, that, that are not being talked about. Thanks so much, uh, Rachel and Chris, for the opportunity to talk about the, the work we do at Project Censored. Uh, founded in 1976, so not much older than, than Covert Action. We go back to kind of the same period in the 1970s, the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, whip inflation now, the church committee hearings, right? All of this the kind of tumultuous decade that was the 1970s spawned some some pretty interesting sort of civic reactions in a lot of ways, covert action being one of those. Project Censored, in my mind, being another. Project Censored was founded by Carl Jensen at Sonoma State University in 1976. And even though we didn't have the, the catchy phrase critical media literacy or media literacy education going back really that far, that's really what Carl Jensen was doing in the college classroom is he was using his classroom as a laboratory to understand and dissect news, news propaganda, how and why news outlets cover what they do. And interestingly enough, what they don't or what they miss or what the delay or lag time is between what he called the independent or alternative media and then the so-called mainstream. We don't really use the term mainstream because, um, as you all know, you know, a handful of corporations run what we call the corporate media uh, or the establishment press. And even in the legacy press, these are all either you know privately owned for-profit enterprises. So they don't really invoke the mainstream sort of ethos or moniker to us because they don't really represent mainstream ideas. They actually are usually elite organs of the state or of their corporate owners. Well, we can get into more of that later. But just very briefly back to Carl and the founding, um, Carl asked this important question about uh, what media do and don't cover and why media really matter and why journalism matters. And Watergate was sort of the inception. And he looked at sort of how, in retrospect, there was much more known about the corruption of the Nixon administration of Watergate, but it just didn't come out until later. And while, of course, there was a great uproar culturally, a big applause, right, that the media saves the day and the system works and these kinds of of things that have turned out to be a lot more dubious since then uh, of those claims. Um, But Carl said, well, that's really important that they cover it, but it's also important that they missed it. And what else are they missing? And so that's the genesis of Project Censored, where he then had students research 
the independent alternative media to find stories that were relevant and fact-based that weren't in the so-called corporate mainstream. And that was the genesis of the project. He brought on judges, journalists, academics, and experts to help vet that. And, you know, here we are, 47, 40, going on 48 years later. We have the annual book, national radio show. Andy Lee Roth and I, this is our 14 or 15th book, annual book together on State of the Free Press. So in a nutshell, that's where we, you know, that's where we've come from as a project. And we've since spanned out, right? We've expanded. We have campus affiliates program that Andy's the coordinator that can talk about. And we're really trying to fill that media literacy education gap because as you said, Rachel, it's not required. It's only been recently that it's required in public schools. And so we've been trying to fill that gap with our publications, our curriculum, our critical media literacy pedagogy, and of course, our other publications of the censored press, including one of the only media literacy books for K-12, The Media and Me. Certainly, you know, and I want to pass the same question over to Andy, just to share more about your curriculum and the work that you do and highlight a little bit more in depth, because I really appreciate, Mickey, you going into this. And I, I am very curious myself to, to pick up that book, because I think that K through 12 education is so important and it is absolutely missing. But but I'd love to hear more from you as well, Andy. Thanks, Rachel. Um, yeah, I mean, Mickey's covered a lot of the, the important historical background today, Project Censored. Each yearbook that we put out, the State of the Free Press yearbook, it represents the best efforts of about 300 people, contributors. Many of those are students at colleges and universities across the country that are in classrooms where their professor has a connection to Project Censored and is using some of Project Censored's curriculum in, in that class. Those classes vary their college and university courses by and large, but they vary from courses for first-year students to advanced courses for juniors and seniors who have declared a major. They aren't necessarily journalism or sociology uh, or communications or media courses. Oftentimes, they're uh, introductory writing courses in an English department. Uh, and what students are doing is twofold. One, they're kind of flexing their critical media literacy muscles uh, working on identifying and vetting and summarizing and analyzing important but underreported stories. The other thing they're doing is they're working on something that potentially has an audience beyond the four walls of their classroom. And uh, my experience, both as a classroom teacher up until about 2015, and, and, and through my work as a coordinator of this program, in touch with professors and students, is that students get really excited by the idea that a story they're researching might get posted on the Project Censored website as a validated independent news story, or it might ultimately be voted to be included in the annual list of the 25 most important but underreported stories. And so when we publish those stories on our website and in the yearbook, we give credit not only to the journalists and the news outlets that broke those stories, but also to the students and faculty mentors who helped identify and vet those stories along the way. So the students take kind of pride and ownership in having brought this story forward and vetted it and checked it for corporate news coverage. And that's all part of this hands-on critical media literacy education that the project has supported since its founding in 1976 with Carl Jensen at Sonoma State University. So I'm very proud of that aspect of the project. If I were going to sum up what the project does in kind of one or two sentences, what I would say 
is you can imagine the project as a bird that flies because both of its wings are strong and powerful. And one of those wings is critical wing. We try to hold, the project tries to hold corporate media to account when they fail to provide us the kind of news and information and perspective that we need to be engaged in our communities, to be active as citizens. And then on the affirmative side, the other wing of the of the bird, we're trying to celebrate and promote public appreciation and understanding and support for truly independent journalism. So the stories that we feature each year, the stories that students are researching and that show up on our validated independent news feature on the website and in the top 25 chapter of the book are all sourced to independent news outlets of one sort or another. And so these are stories that are on those lists because they they either have not been covered by the establishment press or they've been covered in only a partial way, meaning either incomplete and or biased a way. So without the work of independent journalists and independent news outlets, Although in many cases these stories seem discouraging, disheartening, they're not, you know, that we do have good news stories. We champion solutions journalism, but many of these stories are not the kind of story where you read it and go, oh, great, things are working perfectly. But the alternative would be much worse. If these problems existed, but we knew nothing about them, we'd all be far worse off you know, the proverbial goose, if I'm talking bird metaphors today, we'd be cooked. Well, let's stay with the meat idea here, because I <laughs> want to go into some of these stories that are on this list, because I, you know, I consider myself pretty, you know, well up on the news, not just the, you know, corporate news, but, you know, a lot of, you know, what you all report on, obviously what we do at, Co at Covert Action, read a lot of the independent news. And I, I want to ask about a couple of these stories. I just want to get you to talk a little bit about these because I feel like people have not heard about these. Number 22 on the list, public health threatened by beef suppliers continued use of critically, quote, critically important antibiotics. What What's going on here? And how are these antibiotics that are seem to kind of have been banned but can still be acquired through uh, a prescription how are they threatening human health uh, in, in the possible generation of superbugs in the beef supply chain? COVID taught us, Chris, to be alert to the downsides of supply chains. And I think in some ways this is a problem with extended supply chain story and, and probably actually in fairness without being tricky about it, uh, a problem with the way the beef industry in this country works. Um, Beef suppliers for major fast food and supermarket chains are sourcing meat from U.S. farms that use antibiotics that are linked with the spread of so-called superbugs, these bacteria strains that are resistant to antibiotic treatment. And we have this reporting from the two U.K.-based news outlets, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism based in London and The Guardian who uh, jointly looked at U.S. Department of Agricultural data from 2017 to 2022 for 10 of the biggest meat packers in the country. These are not household names because they're on the far end of the supply chain, but these are firms like Cargill, JBS, Green Bay De Dressed Beef, and they found that all 10 of these 
sourced beef from farms that use at least one of these antibiotics that are designated as highest priority or critically important. And those designations, that HPCIA designation, critically important antibiotics, means these antibiotics are often the last line of treatment available for serious bacterial infections in human beings. They're also useful, though, as growth drivers in beef, in cattle. So if we move down the supply chain, we have these farms selling to these big meat packers, the 10 biggest meat packers in the country, who in turn supply places like Wendy's and Walmart and Taco Bell. And what the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and The Guardian found when they looked at this ag data from the federal government was that many of these were using as many as seven of the highest priority critically important antibiotics in the beef that they're selling. So I I want to step back now and come at this story from a slightly different angle, Um, because this story, I, I, I love that you asked about this story because it highlights to me part of what's wrong with the corporate news media. And it's formulated in the most succinct form by one of the project's esteemed judges, Robert Hackett, who founded Newswatch Canada. Bob has been a critic of establishment news for decades. And he, in a 1990 book called The Missing News, he articulated this as clearly as I think it can be done. He he said the problem with the corporate news media is that they focus on what went wrong today and not what goes wrong every day. So here's the what goes wrong every day component of this public health threatened by beef suppliers continued use of critically important antibiotics. Aside from the cattle themselves, which are, of course, living creatures, on the human side of the scales, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, antibiotic-resistant causes more than 35,000 deaths every year in the United States and is accountable for 1.3 million deaths globally. So this is one of those things. There's no dramatic moment where 35,000 people fall over because we're eating beef treated with antibiotics and therefore there are more and more antibiotic-resistant bacteria in our healthcare systems, in our environment. But every year, 35,000 people. Every year globally, 1.3 million people. So this is going wrong every day. The human toll, even if we're completely ethnocentric and we only talk about the human population, the human toll is immense, but it's nowhere in the news. When we researched this story as the top 25 list was finalizing this year, we found no major U.S. outlets No major U.S. news outlets that picked up the report from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and The Guardian. It's just off the radar. And this is another reason I just add, I'll I'll get off my horse here for a moment, uh, my uh, antibiotic-free horse. This is another reason we refer to the establishment media as the corporate media, right? The lack of coverage of this story almost certainly reflects a corporate viewpoint and the ties between the corporate media and, for instance, in this case, the beef industry, right? McDonald's, Taco Bell, Walmart. These are advertisers who prop up the corporate version of the news media in this country, not to mention the the companies that produce the antibiotic uh, resistant drugs. 
No, you you definitely are spot on there. I mean, it's it's I really appreciate kind of the formulation that you've had here uh, about exactly how you know there isn't this particular one moment where the story becomes the the story because it's about the overarching path of how we got here. And I think one of the things that has been on on everyday people's minds is this fear of of the resistance uh, of anti like the the ability for antibiotics to continue to work well into the twenty first century. It is a fear on regular people's minds. But we are not given the context as to how we got here, exactly how this situation was manufactured, created and produced. And so I I know, Mickey, you you definitely see you wanted to get in here. So I want to get you in here. But I do want to say this as, as part of the segue into hearing from you is that. At the end of the day, it really speaks volumes about the way that profits in every single part of this story, uh, it really happened. Because when we talk about investigative journalism in particular, I mean, the reason why so many news outlets have dropped investigative journalism is because there is no money to be made with people who are doing deep research for six, seven, eight months at a time minimum to find these kinds of numbers and information to report on it. But, you know, there's, there's just no money to be made in that kind of journalism. There's no views or clicks or whatever it might be and the public dramatically suffers because of it but mickey i want you in here i know you've got thoughts rachel thank you so much and so much to unpack there i'm so glad that you're giving us the opportunity to do a deep dive and of course that's what you do at covert action i could not help but think it's not just there's no money to be made rachel from the investigative reporting there's billions in corporate profits to be lost and if past is prologue because it is Let's briefly go backwards in our time machine back 25 years when one of the top censored stories was Monsanto, Fox News, Pozolac, antibiotics in the milk and dairy system that cost two intrepid Fox reporters their jobs. And then they lost a lawsuit on appeal. And the people that sat on the board of director at Fox News and Monsanto were on the same boards. They got wind of it ahead of time. Monsanto threatened a lawsuit against Fox. The reporters lawyered up. Nothing was wrong with the story. Fox killed it and fired the reporters anyway after they offered them a $200,000 bribe to shut up about it. That was 25 years ago. This story is, again, this is why, uh, this is a shameless plug, I'm sorry, but this is why the work we do with the project is so important, is not just, as Andy said, what went wrong today, but what goes wrong every day, every month, every year, every decade, with this kind of bias. Not only do we continue to expose these kind of stories at the project year after year, we've been doing it for almost half a century. And it is the same, I mean, it has new look, right, as we can maybe get into story 25 on the Twitter files or other kinds of censorship, right? You know, there may be new dressing, new clothes, new names, new whatever, but the name of the game is still about information control, propaganda, censorship, pushing dominant narratives, curating marginalized people out of the spectrum. And this one story really, I mean, it kind of has all all the hallmarks. And when you, this is what we do every year in the book too. We have a whole chapter that Steve Masick does with us called Deja Vu, censored Deja Vu, what's happened to previous censored stories. And you can go back and find a multitude of these kind of things moving up to the presence, which is what it means to be media literate in a critical way because it attunes students and citizens to the types of topics that are prone to be censored or fooled with by the corporate press in the first place. 
I appreciate that, Mickey. I definitely want to check that out without a doubt. And I mean, at the end of the day, too, what you're describing, I mean, this is the capitalist system. This is the point. I mean, this is what we all, the drain, it always circles the drain and comes back to this. Like, I do appreciate that that framing so much because it is so important to see how corporate media has corporatized. I mean, the, the media serves only the ruling class, only those in power, only those who tell stories that empower themselves. And I mean, it becomes more apparent, obviously, in times like right now, when we see what's going on with Palestine, you have, you know, there was 300,000 people minimum, the maximum that was actually the top end of that number was 500,000 people that were protesting in November and the corporate media reported 30,000. I mean, I feel like that's it's so egregious to the point where it actually feels like it's it's fundamentally just violating journalistic standards because there's no reason how any logical person could see those numbers and misreport them. But they have a vested interest in making sure that these protests look small. I mean, the same story comes back over and over again. But but Chris, I want you to get in here. Well, yeah, I mean, when we we talk about this, we also have to talk about the dangers to journalists and the people who are trying to expose the truth. And I think that's what I want to look at next. You know, we're coming up on the anniversary of the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And, you know, at the time we actually had John Russell of The Holler on the show and he was doing some amazing on the ground work. And people can go back and look. That was our February 15th, 2023 episode of folks want to go back and check that out because that story very quickly disappeared almost as quickly as it came into the news but we also had at the same time and you know john was telling us you know about this the steps he had to go through to just to get into you know city hall meetings and things like that to be able to ask questions of politicians and of representatives of the train company but you know we also had you know evan lambert for example being arrested for trying to ask questions of the governor you know, Evan Lambert is with News Nation. Uh, he has since filed a lawsuit supported by the Reporters Committee uh, for Freedom and the Press and a number of other organizations. So he's actually, you know, suing government officials at, and law enforcement at various levels over that. That was, you know, I think one of the most shocking cases uh, that we saw in the United States. But then we also have, and related to the U.S., we have the attacks on NewsClick in India, if you're familiar with with them where you know the new york times posted this just really awful hit piece on them that had no proof to it completely you know, claiming they were chinese agents and within days of course their offices in india were raided people have been jailed and i believe are still in jail you know high level executives at newsclick still in jail and newsclick is one of the only organizations in india covering for example the uprisings of peasants for their rights and of course, we have to also talk about, we cannot talk about press freedom without talking about Julian Assange, who is being basically slowly killed. He has been given a slow death sentence by the US and the UK. And when we're looking at the overall picture of freedom of the press, you know, they love to say it's the US, anyone can go start a newspaper, and especially now, anyone can go start yeah, a website. Sure. But if you're trying to do this work, if you're trying to get and to expose, whether it's, you know, WikiLeaks, whether it's asking a question of the governor of Ohio after he's downplayed this toxic, uh, toxic train derailment, whatever it is, people are facing real risks. How are you all looking at the press safety situation and how it's developed? There are, of course, physical attacks. There also are legal and technological attacks. And they sort of, so there's a multi kind of pronged 
set of pressures on journalists uh, around the world, including in the U.S. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Evan Lambert. Robin Anderson writes about the case of Evan Lambert covering or attempting to cover the East Palestine train derailment disaster in this yearbook's uh, news abuse chapter. Robin has some about the case of Evan Lambert. Um, obviously, there have been developed since developments since the book went to press. Robin has some good analysis of that. Thinking of Julian Assange, we also have a great piece by Rebecca Vincent of Reporters Without Borders in the Media Democracy in Action section of the book. Rebecca is writing about journalism in the era of national security, and there she identifies a number of cases and issues. But Julian Assange is, as she says, I'll just quote here, the campaign being waged by the U.S. using the Espionage Act and in the U.K. under the National Security Bill of that country, it'll be a historically definitive test of what she calls national security versus journalism. And that case is going to have lasting global implications, Rebecca Vincent writes, no matter what the outcome is. So there's never, I think, been a more dire time for journalists the thing I'll add before turning it over to Mickey to make some additional comments is um, there's a tendency when we do project censored events here, when we speak in classrooms, Mickey, when he teaches in his own classrooms of his own, for people and students to think, oh, these kind of attacks on press freedoms are things that happen elsewhere, not in the U.S. And I always like pointing anyone who's interested in this issue and wants to kind of better inform themselves to the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which is an uh, online resource. I'll just rattle off some numbers about the 2023, the state of the free press in the United States. The U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which is meticulous in its investigation of, of these cases to determine these figures, here, here's what they track for 2023. There were 13 arrests or criminal charges brought against journalists in the USA, 45 assaults, one border stop, 13 chilling statements, 10 denials of access, 12 instances of equipment damage, four more instances of equipment being searched or seized, one leak case, a number of other incidents, and then 11 issues of prior restraint supposedly against the tenets of the First Amendment, and 35 instances of subpoenas or legal orders that have chilling effects. That's just in 2023 alone. We're you know, less than a full month into 2024, and the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker has already tracked six instances in, in this young year. So we can't uh, claim kind of American exceptionalism or say that, oh, since there's a First Amendment in the United States, there are no threats to journalists here. There may be somewhat better checks and balances on impunity when attacks on journalists have here. But when some of those attacks are coming at the hands of the government, whether it's in the form of police officers engaged in arrests and the legal system resulting in criminal charges or when it's members of the public engaged in assaults at rallies, uh, assaults on journalists, we need to be alert not only abroad and there's much more to be said, for instance, about what's happening to journalists trying to cover Gaza. We could talk more about that, but I'll for now just turn it over to Mickey. Yeah, you know, including one of those victims is a police victim the near 100-year-old editor of the Marion newspaper in Kansas, let's not forget, 
were uh, over a political corruption issue. You know, these kind of uh, the hit in in Las Vegas uh, a couple years back. I mean, unfortunately, Andy and I have been covering this assault on journalists issue fairly prominently in the book the last couple of years because there's been such an extraordinary uptake of this. And as Andy just mentioned, and I know that this could easily take over the time we have left, and I'm I, I don't want to do that per se, although it ought you know we rightfully could spend all of our time on it. What when we look at like the Reporters Without Borders and other groups that track these kind of things, what was happening in Gaza was just unfolding or devolving, we'll say, where their numbers were were pretty low. We we know that already over a hundred journalists have been, have been killed there. We don't know how many more. We're talking about uh, over 20,000 people dead uh, after the assault of the IDF assault, Israeli assault in Gaza. Journalists are often amongst the first victims, along with the truth, and talk about radical ways to censor and curate narratives. That's probably one of the oldest one in the books, you know, which is which is pretty incredible. You're listening to Covert Action Bulletin, the official show and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. We'll be right back with Mickey Huff and Andy Lee Roth from Project Censored. I am not Welcome back. You're listening to Covert Action Bulletin. Covert Action has been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. We'll continue our conversation now with Mickey Huff and Andy Lee Roth from Project Censored. I'm, I really quickly just want to segue to Julian Assange and then we can go to, to, to wherever you all want to go, Chris. 
and Rachel, but I'm very glad you brought it up because Assange, historically, among some of the great press freedom insti- in, uh, institutions, um, like the Committee to Protect Journalists, for example, they they continue to exclude him from the jailed journalists list. And and I'm not saying that because I'm wanting to uh, defame what the Committee to Protect Journalists does. They're incredibly significant and so very important. All the more reason why we'd be hopeful that they would consider the status of Assange as the publisher and journalist as he languishes in prison. He's already been in Belmarsh for years longer than some people are in jail for rape cases or for manslaughter cases. This person's languishing in prison, the victim of basically American empire, essentially for daring to try to 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 platform voices uh, that tell the truth about the crimes of the American empire, the United States empire. And one of the things we've done at the uh, Project Censored through the Censored Press is we've published what we think is one of the most definitive books on Julian Assange's case by the great reporter and independent journalist Kevin Gastola, Guilty of Journalism, the Political Case Against Julian Assange. We published that last spring. Abby Martin did a stellar forward work to it. I guess I don't need to urge your listeners at Covert Action because you, John Triakow, and others have been so on this case we do hope, however, that other organizations and other journalistic organizations really come around to support the case of Assange, because if, if they get away with the, the espionage case against him, that's going to pave the way to shut down sources, to shut down journalism, and to close up press freedoms worldwide. And last note, we dedicated this book this past year to the now late, great Daniel Ellsberg, not only a timeless truth teller and whistleblower, wrote an amazing piece on civil courage for us over a decade ago on the importance of protecting whistleblowers and journalists and sources. Ellsberg was a huge supporter of Julian Assange, of WikiLeaks, and of the free press. And it's important to honor his work, I think, as well. We really need to be in solidarity with people like this. And we at the Project are, and we think all of these people are important pillars of the critical media literacy education community. And I really appreciate, Mickey, uh, all your contributions and comments here, because I'm just thinking as you're talking, my my wheels are really turning. And what I'm thinking a lot about, too, and the other part of the conversation that I think is left out on the question of censorship of the press is this other element, too, where in the United States, it's not just that that press are people in the press are arrested or targeted or facing kind of that direct repression. But there's also the the other element uh, of even getting the opportunity to work in journalism, period. Period, which I think is something that isn't talked about as much, which is that the reality is there are no jobs. If you want to be independent, you take major risks. You usually have a second job to be able to tell the truth on the other side, but you can't do real quality investigative journalism without money or anything at all behind you. So to me, I, I feel very strongly that this other part of just filtering people out of the profession to begin with so that way stories can't be told. And those who do take jobs, take jobs at CNN or MSNBC or whatever it might be. And no matter what you want to write, your editor is going to shoot it down, period. No matter what you want to put out there, it goes through an editorial process where if it does come back to you, it's completely unrecognizable. So to begin with, I, I think that's the the other part of what's hidden here in terms of, uh, of the question of 
press repression in the United States. And the other side of this, too, which I want to get your thoughts on, because you you had mentioned um, this phrase, which really got me thinking about, you know, journalism and censorship in the national security state in, in this moment. And I think a lot about the, the role of how all so much of the media that we consume has moved entirely to a digital space. And so, you know, I'm also a journalist at, at Breakthrough News, and this is something that we've experienced, you know, the way that our content is being shadow banned and the way our content is being suppressed and how we overcome this because that's the vast majority of the new media landscape. I mean, post-2014, almost all of the media has moved to be directly consumed on social media. I mean, there's all these studies that have come out about where millennials and primarily Gen Z get their information. For Gen Z, it's TikTok. For millennials, it's a combination of podcasts and Instagram. And so if people are consuming news on these platforms, and these are private platforms run by private corporations, run by billionaires ultimately, then the kind of control over the media is even more concentrated in a totally different light. So I'm curious your thoughts on kind of the 21st century understanding and the digital realities that we're facing of censorship in press. Yeah, I mean, I think those are huge issues you raise, Rachel. Um, Mickey and I write some about them in the introduction to the current yearbook under the guise of two kind of cute phrases. One is news snacking and the other is news finds me. I'll say a little bit about the news snacking and then a little more maybe about news finds me. So news snacking is this idea, this is this term the German colleague of ours, Hector Harkater, developed the idea that we kind of consume news now on an incidental basis, right? You're flipping through your phone while you're waiting in line to pay for your groceries at the market. Um, or, you know, it, you, we, you don't really sit down and no one... The strangest thing I could tell my students when I taught in the classroom, the strangest thing I could tell them about myself was that I read a newspaper every morning at breakfast, <laughs> a physical newspaper. <laughs> nothing I could tell them. The music I liked, the things I was interested in, nothing made me so outlandish to them as that, right? It was like, you're from another planet. But news snacking is now the norm. It's this incidental consumption of news. It's highly connected through social media to this idea of news finds me, which is the perception, or we should say really the misperception, that as long as I'm keeping up with my social media feeds on Facebook or Insta or whatever, nothing important will elude me because I'll see it across my feed, right? Now, this is a misperception. We know from a 2017 study that people with the news finds me perception, people who treat news that way tend to be have a false sense of how much they know and in fact have significant gaps in their knowledge. So the news finds me misperception is a fundamental problem on the demand side of the equation. It's not just that the corporate media are feeding us crud, but that we're not even paying careful attention to whatever news comes across our uh, little screens because we're snacking, right? And we're convinced, many of us, that anything important will actually come to us. The kicker on that, of course, is that those news feeds or those social feeds are controlled by algorithms that are considered proprietary property of these big tech companies, Meta and Google and Microsoft, that have zero commitment to ethical journalism. They don't see themselves as news organizations. They don't pretend to be news organizations. 
whether it's a report from The Intercept or an advertisement for a hair product, it's just content to them. And probably it's worse if it's a report from The Intercept because that might upset people, right? Whereas the hair product just keeps you in your role as a consumer. So there's a simple solution to this. We can cut the middle person out of the equation. You don't have to rely on your social media for your news. You can support independent news outlets that you trust directly by subscribing to their, you know, it sounds like such a quaint old thing, their RSS feed, right? Their newsletter. If they are a print publication and you can afford it, you can actually subscribe to the the publication. And then you aren't at the mercy of Meta's algorithm or what news do you receive. Otherwise, though, we know. We know too much now. It's going on at least eight years now that we know that independent news outlets that report stories that challenge status quo understandings about the issues of the day are getting shadow banned and demonetized and basically just jerked around by these big tech platforms. And this is what we refer to at the project as censorship by proxy, which is a different than legally prior, you know, considered prior restraint. And we've written about this at length. And in fact, Carl Jensen's original definitions of censorship really, you know, expanded them. It was anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have free press principles functions architecturally in society as some kind of censorship, right? And so... This I, what Andy just described is not just nefarious, it's pernicious. I mean, it's widespread, it's ubiquitous, this kind of censorship. The shadow banning, the deplatforming, the demonetization. Although it, it legally it's considered okay because we live in a capitalist system, right? And that, that interpretation is that these are proprietary, as Andy said, proprietary algorithms. Uh, they're legally allowed, they own the platform. They're allowed to say what is and isn't cool there, right? That's how Elon Musk somehow gets to fashion himself as some kind of free speech, you know, savior and hero. And of course, we know that's not the case at all. Um, but we also know the case that it's because of some of the things that we've learned through Twitter, now X, that we know the government has been colluding with these companies to try to shut things down, shadow ban them, hide information, favor certain things over others. And our position is that it's wrong no matter who's doing it. It's really easy, as Alan McLeod, who works at Impress News, wrote the great forward to our book this year. Alan's a great media literacy scholar, too, an historian. And he writes that in, 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 this, in the U.S., you know, we have like 90-some percent of people that watch Fox skew Republican and an equal percentage of people that watch MSNBC or CNN or the New York Times or whatever skew Democrat. He talks about the frame of Team Red and Team Blue, not Team Ethical Journalism or We the People in the Public Interest, Right. And that's what we keep getting at here. And it's that kind of censorship and shadow banning, and it's our own confirmation biases that feed into our own censorious practices. You know, when Andy was talking about that news snacking and the news finds me. So, you know, the news finds me sounds like the name of the news, the perfect newspaper for Dunning-Kruger Nation, right? As the whole idea of like, well, we know as much as we need to, and they wouldn't lie to us, and this is what we need to know, and... Again, back to that Team Red, Team Blue, the media really capitalizes on that frame. You know, we've written about it in numerous books by now. And as Andy said, we know that these kind of things have been happening. We know that this is the strategy. These are the electoral game plans to, to tribalize people into these two camps. And, you know, what suffers 
ultimately, in addition to just the truth and ethical journalism, is our republic, a functioning democracy, our completely just sort of, I'm lacking for words here because it's a renegade foreign policy. I mean, it's just we're openly supporting policies that are wantonly in violation of international law. I mean, again, all these things kind of break down and, and the press itself, the fourth estate is supposedly one of those final frontiers, those final places where we have a, a check and balance for the people. And so while we write a lot about how that space has decayed and there's a lot of corruption in it, we also at Project Censored write about who's doing a really stellar job in the name of We the People and who are these great, intrepid, independent journalists? Because there are many of them. They may not get to be the loudest or the most widely heard, but that doesn't make them less important. In fact, it interestingly makes them more so. And when we highlight those people, we're not claiming that we found them or that we did anything. We're simply saying that our students in the process of learning about media literacy and the importance of journalism for self-governance, they're discovering these very people that we know about too. And it's very empowering when people, because again, you see poll after poll, uh, people are saying that the, the media lies, there's no trust in the media, there's no trust in our institutions. Well, a lot of that is earned because they're not practicing ethical journalism. What Andy and I and the people that work with the project try to show by example is these are reporters that are doing the important stories, right? Whether it's an Alan McLeod showing how the Israeli government and the CIA have revolving door people coming into big tech and into news organizations to fact check and these kind of things, or Matt Taibbi in the in the Twitter files, or just, I don't know, maybe like 10 of the stories about the environment, the importance of actual climate reporting, where the reporters aren't kowtowing to the Heartland Institute or ExxonMobil. You know, journalism matters. Muckraking journalism 100 years after its heyday matters. And at Project Censored, we think it's our job, small job, at least to help highlight and teach people where that is and what it looks like so we can have meaningful civic engagement to face the challenges we do in the 21st century. Well, we, we have just a few minutes left, but I think it's actually very important that we talk again about the Twitter files because that was like a one-two punch in a way in the way that it was handled and it was treated because you had a lot of people on the pro progressives who are all for independent journalism ignored it because it was Elon Musk and they hate, hate Elon Musk. And I mean, the guy's promoting white nationalism and white supremacy, like, don't blame them. And, you know, they didn't like some of the journalists who were involved. Oh, so many people ignored it because they said, well, I don't like who's telling this story. But it was the Twitter files was such a critical story. It was one for me, one of the biggest stories of 2023, showing that, yes, in fact, the federal government had direct connections with a major social media company and was suggesting to them what content to pull, what accounts to ban or shadow ban, and also what accounts they wanted to be highlighted. That was that should have been such a bigger story, but because it was about federal government policy and then because it was about Elon Musk and because of some of the characters involved, it got so ignored and that was so frustrating to me. So I'm glad to see that you were, you know, you're talking about that here. You know, the idea of the the push, really the push notification, right, ism of journalism, where it's like you get your, you know, every day, my Apple News top stories. Okay, well, fine. That's gr great. So I was, you know, 
found out, you know, that DeSantis dropped out very quickly. Fine. But what like we always have to be asking ourselves, what else is missing? And I appreciate the fact that you, you know, you brought up RSS feeds and newsletters. My inbox is a disaster because of the number of newsletters I'm on, and I wouldn't have it any other way. People should, if they if they appreciate somebody, even on Twitter, or if they appreciate an outlet that they go to and check regularly, get on that newsletter. Because that way you can make sure that that's getting to your inbox. And yes, at Covert Action, we do have a newsletter. You can go to the website and subscribe. We're just going to plug that right there. But in our last few minutes, uh, I just want to get, you know, your closing thoughts from each of you. If you want to identify some of these people that you really look to these days for the muckraking and the investigative journalism and the truth telling, uh, if you want to, you know, shout a few of them out and just give kind of your thoughts as we go into 2024 here with you know where you think we're headed yeah i mean i'm i i hesitate i don't think we need more people on pedestals i think that's the business of the corporate news media to build up stars who who, you know in an effort to recreate a most trusted man in america dynamic and i don't know that that's we're well served by that um I would say anyone who wants to track some of the sources that we at Project Censored keep our eyes on on a regular basis, you could look at the top 25 story list. You could look at the project's um, website where we keep a list of, It's a, a, and I will quickly add, it's not a complete list by no means. That's an impossible task, but we keep a list of uh, important independent news outlets organized by topical area um, that started out as a resource for students working in the campus affiliates program, but was so popular that we decided to make it public. Um, so that's there on the website as a resource. I think the final point I would make is one about news inflation, which is a term that the project's founder, Carl Jensen, coined not too long after the project was created. And the idea was a simple one that has become only more true as time has passed. The idea that with news, we have more and more of it, but it seems to be worth less and less. And I think the idea that Carl got at is also at the heart of what Project Censored is trying to do. We're saying of these stories that we produce each year, the validated independent news stories that are the candidates, the top 25 story list, the 1,200 stories that we've promoted that way since the project's founding in the 70s, that these stories, challenging though they may be, are worth your time. And the journalism that produced them is worth your support. And so I think that's how I would answer that question, which is I know a bit of a dodge in terms of heroes in the field. I would hate to name anyone because I know uh, without enough time, I would be leaving out people whose work is crucial, people without whose work we would be that much more dimly informed. Um, but I do think like if you go to the project website and check out the top 25 story list, if you pick up a copy of the book, the sales of which support our media literacy programs for young people, you'll find no shortage of people whose work is not only admirable, but in some ways inspiring. I agree. As the, the great journalist and media critic of the mid-20th century, George Saldi said, the job of journalism is is it's about telling people what's really going on and anybody that can do that that can tell a story that needs to be told about something happening in in someone's community that you know goes to the core of addressing an injustice or goes to right a wrong or 
points out something that we really need to collectively know to address together, that's where the heroic work is, right? It's in the process of literally doing journalism. And as we said earlier in this conversation, and as we all pointed out, not is it just often a thankless task but or an underpaid task, but a dangerous one, a life-threatening task to try to tell some of these very important stories. And I think at ProjectCensored.org, you get a real taste of who we think these great independent journalists are. And look, you, you get the idea here is that we this is why we teach about the media literacy education component is because we want people to understand where they can go and find the news and not wait for the news to find them. Yeah, thank you so much, Mickey and Andy, for this. I mean, certainly, I mean, my own thoughts on the the frontier of where media goes from here is is the challenge of video. I mean, I'm, I'm primarily a video journalist because the reality is that is the truth. You know, people, news finds people, you know, people don't look for news. And so we have to go to where people are. And so where people are is consuming one minute videos. And how do you fit complicated political analysis in one minute videos? That's what I do every single day, all day. That is all my brain thinks about. And it's you're never really going to get all of it, but the hope is to give people enough of a taste that they want more. That is such a challenge uh, of this moment, and there's so much more we could talk about, but I really wanted to say we appreciate so much what you guys both do at Project Censored and the work you guys have done for years and the overall mission of Project Censored, and we're so happy to have you, and we'd love to have you again, but we are going to have to leave it right there. But before we go, if you like what you heard today and you want to support independent journalism, go to Patreon dot com backslash covert action magazine and become a patron we can only do this show with the support of our listeners so if you do want to hear more please be sure to go to our patreon to support you've been listening to covert action bulletin i'm rachel who and i'm chris garaffa covert action bulletin is the official show of covert action magazine and is brought to you by way of wbai 99.5 fm pacifica radio in new york if you missed any of our episodes you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin or listen on your station's archive. We are out of time today. Thanks for listening to Covert Action Bulletin. Covert Action.
shame what they did to it. Not gonna rap, just don't do that same rap. But they take the rawness away. Just, just didn't make it too pretty. into listener-supported community radio, KBOO Portland. Tune in to KBOO on Saturday, February 17th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. for a special live remote broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream. Keep Alive the Dream is an annual celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This year's event includes guest speakers and musical performances from the MLK All-Star Band, Eli Hardy, and more. Again, that's a special live broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream, Saturday, February 17th, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., here on your community radio station, KBOO, Portland. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to KBOO 90.7 FM.